our girls love more than anything else is watching movies. They love to go to the movies. They love to go and rent movies. They love for us to buy them movies. And they own a lot, and they've seen a lot of movies. It was kind of embarrassing. A while back, I was uh, with them at the library helping them pick out a movie, and they were having trouble finding one they had not seen or, or one that they did not own. And the librarian saw that we were spending quite a bit of time over there, so she thought she'd be nice and come over and try to help us find something. And I was trying to be nice and say, oh, that's a great movie, thank you so much, with my girls in the background saying, Dad, we've seen that a million times, or we own that, you know. I mean, they've seen a lot of movies, and they, and they love them. And many of you know who grew up on kids' movies, grew up on Disney movies, or, or you parents who have kids at home, you know that there are two key characteristics that are found in most kid movies. And those two characteristics are conflict and resolve. We've said in the past here, every good story has conflict. And every good kid's story has both conflict and resolve. And, and I believe also that what sets certain kids' stories apart from the rest is when the conflict is great. Because the greater the conflict means the greater the resolve, which often makes for an even greater story. One movie our girls love to watch over and over again is the new Disney movie about... Uh, uh, Rapunzel, called Tangled. How many of y'all have seen Tangled? Okay, good. good. Quite a few of you. You know there's great conflict in this story, right? And I know a lot of y'all didn't come here this morning to hear about uh, girly princess movie, but bear with me, okay, while I give you a, a brief synopsis of this story. The movie begins with Rapunzel as a baby, and she receives healing powers from a magical flower. Sounds like a girly princess movie, doesn't it? Yeah. And uh, after receiving these powers, in the middle of the night, she is kidnapped by this, this woman from the palace, and she's taken away. And this woman uses the powers in Rapunzel's hair to stay young forever. And as Rapunzel gets older, this woman acts as if she is her real mother and raises her locked up away in the back of the woods in this tall tower where nobody can find her. And she tells Rapunzel the reason she keeps her hidden away is because she is protecting her from the dangers of the world. So, so early on in this story, the situation is dim for this princess. There is great conflict in this story at first she thinks that this woman who has kidnapped her is her actual mother and is protecting her from the dangers of the world so at first at the start of the movie it doesn't seem as if Rapunzel's ever going to get out of that tower and see her parents again which would be terrible right but we know of course that she will because it's a Disney movie but at the very beginning, there's great conflict in this story, which means there's also great resolve in this story, which is the reason why my girls are glued to it when it's on TV. That's the reason why it's entertaining and enjoyable. And, when, and again, we see this in, in kids' stories. We see conflict 
and resolve. And the greater the, re- the, the conflict, the greater the resolve, which makes for an even greater story. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. We are continuing our study through this great book. We've entitled this study, Walking Worthy. And the reason why I've given this study, this series, this title is because of the key verse that's found in the very middle of the book in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. In this verse, Paul tells us this. He says, in light of all that God's done for you, in light of who you are in Christ, you are to in turn walk worthy for God. And in the first half of this book, Paul spends some time focusing on what God has done for us and who we are in Christ because of the great work God has done for us. And the reason why Paul begins the book in this way, we've been talking about over the past few weeks, the reason why he begins with first what we know before he focuses on what we do is because Paul knows that knowing precedes doing. If we're going to be faithful in practice, Paul knows we must first be sound in doctrine. That's why he begins chapters 1 through 3, he talks about what we know. And then chapters 4 through 6, he talks about what we as believers are to do in light of what we know to be true. And that's what Paul explains here this morning in this passage in Ephesians 2 spends more time focusing in on the great work that God has done for us. And that's what we're going to focus on for the next two weeks in here. This morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. What we're going to learn from this sermon today and the one next week is that behind this call to walk worthy, there is this story. There is a story behind this call to walk worthy. And it's God's story, but it's a story of us. And this story is essentially what Paul prays that we as believers know at the end of chapter 1. This is the story that Paul prays that our hearts would be opened and enlightened to. This is the story that Paul hopes and prays we as believers can internalize so that we'll be motivated to walk worthy for God. And like I said just a moment ago, all stories, all great stories have conflict and resolve, right? And the greater the conflict, the greater the resolve, which normally makes for an even greater story. And that's true here as well. In this story, there is great conflict. I would say that the conflict in this story is seemingly irreconcilable. That's how great it is. But though that's the case, there is also in God's story and in our story, miraculous resolve. And what sets this story far above and beyond any other story. The reason why it's considered by many to be the greatest story ever told is not just because the conflict is great and the resolve is great, that's a part of it, but another reason why is because this story is absolutely true. It's true. Unlike the fairy tales we grew up on, like Rapunzel and others, this story happened. 
And Paul here, he gives us the cliff notes of this story in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. It's one of my favorites in the Bible. If you were going to write the cliff notes for the gospel, if you were going to summarize the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in less than 300 words, I guarantee you you couldn't do it better than Paul does it here. It's a very important passage of Scripture, which is why I've decided to take two Sundays to preach it. This morning, we're going to focus mainly on the conflict in God's story. And next week, we're going to focus on the resolve. So let's take the rest of our time that we have left here this morning to to focus our attention on the conflict in God's story from Ephesians 2. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Look at what Paul says here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Stop there for a minute. Notice here, Paul doesn't kind of ease into things, does he? He wasn't known to do that, was he? He comes right out. And he, he tells us right off the bat here what our problem is. He begins this passage in chapter by addressing our greatest problem in this life. Look at verse 1 again. Does he say you were hindered in trespasses and sins? No. Does he say you were sick with sin? No. He says you were dead in trespasses and sin. Here we have the conflict. The conflict is this. We were dead because of sin. We've said this time and time again in here, and it needs to be said time and time again. Sin is man's greatest problem, and it's the major conflict in our story. All of mankind, without exception other than the Lord Jesus, comes into this world dead because of sin. Now, what does Paul mean when he says dead here? Some people hear this verse of Scripture and they argue. They say, I'm not dead. It's not true of me. Though I'm not following Jesus, I'm very much alive. I choose. I speak. I will. I do. I'm not dead. What's Paul talking about here? He's not talking about death in a physical sense, is he? But he is talking about spiritual death. You know, life is all about a relationship with God. So get this. If you're not right with Him, you're not truly living. If you're living your life opposed to Him, you're not truly living because there is no true life apart from God. That's what Paul's saying here. That's his point. So you can be living, breathing, doing what you want, choosing what you want, but if you are not in right relationship with God, you are not truly living. And get this. Though Paul is talking about death in a spiritual sense here, there is a comparison to be made between the two, between physical death and spiritual death. For example, in physical death, one is unable to respond in a physical way no matter the incentive. When you are physically dead, let me let you in on something, you are physically dead, okay? You do not respond. Not even the tears and cries of your closest loved one can bring you back from that. Am I right? Spiritual death is similar. When one is dead to God, they're in a fixed state with an inability to respond. 
folks. We at one time, believers, you at one time were dead. Now, who in here would agree with me that there's a difference between being sick and being dead? Anybody? Yeah? Yeah. Hopefully everybody, right? Now, think about this. I've asked you to do this in the past, but it fits here. Think about how being sick hinders you, and then think about how being dead hinders you. And that should, should give you a better idea of who you were prior to salvation. Remember, Jesus used these two concepts together, did he not? Physical death and spiritual death. Remember in Matthew chapter 8, verse 22? Remember he called a certain man to follow him. And the man said, I'll follow you, but first let me go home and bury my father. He was putting worldly matters before following Jesus. You remember what Jesus said to him? He said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus said, follow me. He alludes to the fact here that there are spiritually dead people carrying on in life and going about their own lives and carrying out mundane tasks that matter little in the grand scheme of things, that matter little for eternity. That's what Jesus is, is, is pointing to here. He's indicating here. And Paul is as well in Ephesians 2. He says, that was you, believers. That was you prior to salvation. You were doing the exact same thing. You were death walkers, spiritual zombies, walking aimlessly through this life apart from Christ and opposed to God. Now notice also that Paul says here, we believers were dead in both trespasses and sins. What do those words mean? Trespasses and sins. We hear them a lot, don't we? We even use them on occasion. But what do they mean? Well, the word trespass refers here to making a a misstep or a false step. And the word sin has to do with missing the mark completely. Now, some have taken the word trespass to, to mean that we can get close. They think we might make a false step, we might miss the mark, but we can get close to what God wants. And and some even believe that there are corrections that can be made by us so that we can be right with God on our own. But what Paul meant here, by using these words in this context, he doesn't just mean that we're just a smidge off, like throwing darts at a dartboard and hitting the ring but not the bullseye. That's not the point Paul's making here in using these words. The words trespasses and sins in this context means we're completely off, folks. At one time, you were headed in a completely different direction. You were playing on a completely different field with a different deck. You you had your sights set on completely different things, a different target. Paul's point here is that we have all failed to measure up in any way to the demands that have been placed upon us by God. We have failed to live up to what God has called us to be. We have failed to measure up. We have missed the mark by a million miles and more. Now, what is the mark? We said we're off point. We're off target. We failed to hit God's target. What is God's target? Paul tells us, doesn't he? Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of what? God's glory. That's the target. The glory of God. 
Sin is a failure to glorify God. And we have all missed that target, haven't we? And notice here, something interesting. You know, we often define sin in this way. We, when we talk about sin, we talk about the bad things that we do. Sin is lying. Sin is cheating. Sin is stealing. We define sin as the bad things we do, which it is. But get this. Sin has as much to do with what we don't do as it does what we do. It does. Sin has everything to do with what we fail to do. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says what brings glory to God is a righteous life, a sinless life that is solely devoted to God. Now, let me ask you, based upon this mark, anybody there? On your way? By your own power? No. We've not done this. We have missed perfection by a million miles and more. God calls for us to be holy. He calls for us to be perfect. He calls for us to live for him and his glory. That's the target, and that's the very mark where we fall short. That's the very point where we miss the mark, and we miss it completely. Now, there are differing degrees to this. I would agree with the person who says there's different levels of depravity when looking at their unbelieving neighbor across the street and a serial killer. But just like if you looked at different corpses, you would see varying levels of decay. It's the same thing. They're all still dead. That's the point. You could also look at it in this way. If you were to stand on the shore with a group of people on the shore of the, of the Atlantic Ocean and jump together off into the water. Though you might hit the water at different points and though some may jump farther out than others, everyone's going into the ocean. Am I right? No one jumping is going to scale it and land on dry land on the other side. Same is true in a spiritual sense. It doesn't matter the effort one puts in. No one is getting to perfection through personal effort and devotion. Anyone who has tried has come up infinitely short. So you see here, sin is not just what you do, but it's what you don't do. It's what you fail to do. Some people say, well, so-and-so is a decent person. They have good morals. They're devoted to their spouse and their kids. They put others' needs before themselves. They're better than most. Well, that may be the case, but the problem is they're not perfect. And if they're living out of fellowship with God, if they have not exchanged their sin for Christ's righteous life, if they're going in life on their own and try to carve out a life apart from God, though they may make a valiant effort in their jump to perfection, they land in a sea of sin. They miss the mark by a million miles and more. Some of you are thinking, okay, Graham, we get it, you know? Why belabor this point? You know why? Because God belabors this point. Does he not? He belabors this point. There's hardly a place you can turn to in the Bible and not see sin as a focus. 
And the reason why is because it's man's greatest problem. And it's the major conflict in God's story. That's why Paul continues the way he does in verses 2 through 4. As we've said many times in this series, the emphasis in Ephesians is upon walking worthy. And Paul knows that in order for people to walk worthy for God, to walk worthy of the calling to which they've been called, they need to know the great work that God has done in redeeming them. And for them to come to this realization, they need to be reminded of how they once walked. We need to be reminded, believers, of how we once walked. And in this passage, Paul mentions three characteristics of how we walked prior to salvation. Look here. First, we walked with the world. We walked with the world. Look at verse 2. Paul says, in which you once walked following the course of this world. Paul reminds us here that the conflict in God's story and the conflict in our story, it precedes us, does it not? When we came into this world, when our portion of the story began, things were already messed up. When we came into the world, we came into a messed up story marked with conflict, did we not? The conflict began early on, toward the beginning. We learn in Genesis 1 and 2, man had a very good beginning. It didn't last very long, two chapters. Man was created in in God's image. Both male and female were in his image without sin and in right relationship with God, but it didn't take long for all of that to change. Just three chapters in, we learn that man rebels and sin enters into the world and ruins and wrecks God's perfect creation and everyone other than Christ who have come after Adam and Eve has followed in this pattern of sin and rebellion against God. Adam and Eve were marked by sin and they rebelled against God and they passed this problem on to everyone else. And as a result, all of us enter into this world with our hearts set on rebellion. All of us enter into this world with our hearts set on repeating the sin of Adam and living a life apart from and opposed to God. That's the way of the world. That's the course of this world, as Paul calls it in Ephesians 2.2. So the first characteristic of an unbeliever that, that, that Paul gives is they're following the course of this world. They walk in rebellion against God. They repeat the sin of Adam in that they reject God's rule and reign in their life, and they go at life on their own. And we see this all the time, do we not? We do. I mean, everywhere we turn, we see man and woman going in life on their own, doing whatever they want to do, doing what makes them feel happy, doing what's right in their own eyes. That's following the course of the world. Paul says to the believers of his day, and he says to us, his greater Christian audience, you once walked in this way, believers. This is how you were prior to your salvation. Secondly, not only did we walk with the world, but we walked with the enemy. Number two, we walked with the enemy. Look at verse two. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air here is a reference to Satan. 
In God's story, we, we learn that before people rebelled against God, angels rebelled against God. Angels are created beings, and some of them, like us, rebelled against him. And one of them was Satan. Satan was an angel of God who led and is leading a spiritual rebellion against God. And we know that his influence is real, do we not? We see him at specific points in God's story of redemption. We see him in the garden. We see him tempting Jesus in the wilderness. We see him entering into Judas, who betrayed Jesus. And we're told that he will continue to fight and rebel against God until he meets his end. So we have a real spiritual enemy in Satan. And we know that he plays a part, don't we, in our struggle with sin. He was there again with man and woman in the garden in the beginning when man and woman fell. Now, both Adam and Eve wanted to eat that fruit. Don't tell yourself for a second that they didn't because they did. They did. They were attracted to it. We're told that the fruit was a delight to their eyes. But Satan was also there twisting God's word and tempting them to question his goodness. So Satan plays a key role in deceiving them and leading them into sin. And this evil influence is still seen and felt to this very day. Now again, he's not the sole cause of our sin. Sorry folks, you can't blame everything on the devil. Say the devil made me do it every time. But he plays a real part. And he's behind a a, a lot of the influence that we see in our world today that tempts us to step out on our own apart from God and question his word and doubt his goodness. This originated with Satan, which is why John says what he does about him in 1 John 3, 8. He says the devil has been sinning since the beginning. He's been in rebellion against God long before any of us. Paul says prior to salvation, we walked with him in sin. We are enticed by him. We are influenced by him and sided with him and against God. So we walked with the world. We walked with the enemy. And third and finally, we walked in the flesh. Look at verse 3. Paul says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You know the reason why we're so quick to follow the course of this world? The reason why we're so easily influenced by the prince of the power of the air? You know why I get this? Because deep down we want to rebel. We do. We always do what we most want to do, and deep down, mankind wants to rebel. I tell this to Ava a lot. I tell her the reason you hit your sister is because you wanted to. And that came from your heart, and your heart needs to be changed. And Daddy's praying that God would change your heart and show you your sinfulness and your need of a Savior. Folks, Till we come to this understanding, the passions of our flesh are set on rebellion. They're set on sinning against God. Nothing will change, right? We need to understand this. We need to understand we're not inherently good, which is what the world teaches. We're not even neutral when it comes to sin. The passions of our flesh, the desires of our body, they're set on evil. 
Some believe man's not sinful, they're just forgetful. That's what they say. They believe that we mean well, we're just at times careless. Others believe we're neutral when it comes to sin and de- uh, you know, Satan and his demons are just really convincing. You know what the Bible tells us? You know what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2? Without Christ, we are dead. We're dead spiritually. Though we have in- evil influences all around us in this world and beyond in the spiritual realm, Scripture is clear that there is nothing good in us apart from God. Listen to the way Paul says it in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. He says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Listen to Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah says, Satan is deceitful above all things. Is that what he says? He's the deceiver, right? But what does he say? He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. That's Bible. We're sinful people. We have this desire within us to go at life on our own, live for ourselves. And and though the world and the enemy play a part in this wickedness, all they really do is just bring this wickedness up from out out from uh, our heart and out into the open. And because this is the case, notice the consequence that Paul mentions in verse 3. Look at it with me again. It says in verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul makes mention here that there's a consequence for those who are dead in sin. He tells us that those whose sins have not been covered, those who do not belong to God, they are under God's wrath. Scripture is clear that God's wrath is set against any and everyone who is opposed to him and who do not belong to him. Folks, God necessarily hates sin because he's righteous. Sin is opposed to righteousness, therefore God's opposed to sin because he's righteous. You get it? So he's necessarily opposed to sin. Well, herein lies the problem. We're sinners. It's what we've been discussing this morning. Verses 1 through 4. Therefore, God's wrath is set against us. Notice what else Paul says. He says, this is not just an outward activity of ours that we need to stop doing. Our sin is not just a hard habit to break. He says, by nature, by nature, we were children of wrath. In other words, like we said earlier, born with this problem... David said, in sin did my mother what? Conceive me. Conceive me. We are by nature sinners, children of wrath. This issue has infected everyone. Not just individuals, but everyone. He says, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So again, We see all people, other than Christ, without exception, are born 
with this problem. We are all dead in sin. We all follow the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and live in the passions of our flesh and carry out the desires of the body and the mind, and we are all at our core by nature children of wrath. Wow. Believers, we at one time were in a bad way, weren't we? We were. Again, Paul is writing here to the believers of his day, and he's writing to us, his greater Christian audience, reminding us of where we were and who we were and how we once walked so that we'll have a better understanding of the great grace and mercy of our God who saved us from a life of sin and called us from death to life and raised us up to walk in newness of life. He's telling us this, folks, so that our hearts would be open and enlightened to this great work that God has done for us and in us and through us so that we would in turn walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Maybe you're here this morning for the first time you've been truly made aware of your, of your sinfulness and your need of a Savior. Listen, though this is written in the past tense, if you're not a Christian, This is not your past. This is your present. This is your present. This is where you are right now. If you have yet to give your life up and over to the Lord Jesus, you are dead in trespasses and sins. You are following the course of this world. You are following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience is at work in you right now. You are living by the passions of your flesh. You're carrying out the desires of your body and mind and you are by nature a child of wrath like the rest of mankind. If Christ is not your Lord, this is your present. Be honest with me for a second. That's bad news, isn't it? It really is. But like we said at the beginning, like we'll learn next week as we look at the latter half of this passage, though there is great conflict in this story, get this, there is also miraculous resolve. There's great resolve. And though I will reread and discuss this next week, I cannot leave here today without reading verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians 2. Look at the first part of verse 4. Paul says, but God. I love that, don't you? I'm thankful for that, aren't you? This passage begins with, and you. And that's the bad news, right? But it ends with the best news of all. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The bad news is, you, me, us, if left to ourselves, we are spiritually dead. But the good news is, because of God's great mercy and love with which he loved us, he has provided for us everything that we need through his Son. Even though we're dead in sin, God has made a way for us. When there seemed to be no way, he made a way for us to be made alive again through Christ. And today, if you have not, you can move from darkness to light, from death to life today. If you would turn from your sin and trust in God's Son alone for your salvation. If you've never made that decision, pray you would not leave here today without doing so. Let's pray.